when I was growing up, our family had Sunday dinner together every week. That's the noon meal on Sunday. For those of you from other places, maybe you're not aware of this, but in the South, we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or supper, Monday through Saturday. But on Sunday, you have breakfast, dinner, and then supper. Uh, Sunday dinner is a very special meal that is in the middle of the day after the morning worship service. And our Sunday dinner usually was a pot roast. Uh, I didn't realize how special that was until I grew up and read stories of Americans who regularly went without meat for any meal. I didn't realize how grateful I should have been. Uh, do you know why we're so crazy about fried food in the South? It's because um, many years ago when so many people living in the South were impoverished after the Civil War, the poor could get more calories out of something if it's fried. So when you were hungry, more calories, the better, right? So we were blessed with a pot roast most of the time. And the pot roast usually had with it potatoes and carrots and onions and always a bay leaf on top for flavor. We'd arrive home just in time for the pot roast to be finished cooking. And then we had, of course, all those little Sister Schubert rolls that are so good. And then after dinner, my mom would get out the ice cream. And we usually got one half gallon a week. And uh, by the time my brothers and me and my sister all got bowls of ice cream, my poor dad was left with very little. Um, and my favorite was coffee. Uh, Briars, coffee, ice cream. I don't like coffee, but I like coffee ice cream with hot fudge and whipped cream. And I, of course, can't have that anymore, but that was my favorite growing up. And I remember those Sunday dinners with my family, but now my Sundays are really different. I, I don't, I get, I get in the car, I head home, or I go out to eat with others to, who do the same. And, and I didn't realize growing up that... Uh, that was a big deal, Sunday dinner at home. But you know, Southerners have another uh, tradition uh, for Sunday dinner, not just a pot roast. And you might know what I'm talking about. People get in their cars and they have, for their first course of Sunday dinner, roast preacher. Yeah, that's right. I mean, here are some of the things people say. He's getting harder to listen to these days. I wish he'd comb his hair differently. His wife has been putting on some weight. His children run wild all over the building. Have his sermons been getting longer? You can tell which popular preacher he's been listening to on the radio and on the internet. I sure wish he'd stop preaching on the Song of Solomon. And what's with those plaid pants? <laughs> now, of course, no one says that in our church, right? Well, well, I know pastors aren't perfect, and wives and children aren't perfect. I get that. But do you know what is perfect? The book from which they preach. Now, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions here. The first assumption is that the pastor's goal is to faithfully exposit the Word of God. So the assumption here is that he's not just giving his opinion. And he's not politicizing the Bible. You know, making a political statement that sounds biblical, when really it's not. It's just politics. And, and I'm assuming then he's not making applications built 
on traditional morals or on cultural standards. These are actually applications that arrive from a fair reading of the text. That's my first assumption. My second assumption is that when he opens his mouth, out of it comes an explanation of God's truth. And I want to tell you, Pastor Joe and I take this very seriously. In fact, we will often have lengthy uh, discussions in my office talking about a particular passage and exactly what is the right way to interpret that passage because sometimes it requires that kind of discussion. It's just really incredibly important to us that we get the Word of God right. And when that occurs, the scenario Jesus gave in His parable, well, now that comes into play. And what I want to describe then are four potential conversations in four different cars on the ride home from church. And here's car number one. Let's get into the car. I got nothing out of that sermon. Let me tell you something, friends. We are responsible for what we hear from God's Word. I want you to notice the emphasis on the importance of listening to God's truth. Look at the two calls to listen. In verse 3, do you see the word hearken? And then in verse 9, the command is to listen. Jesus is saying to this audience, you need to pay attention to what I'm saying. And now look at the words hear or heard or hearing. In verse 9, in verse 12, verse 18, and verse 20, we have the word hear. Heard, verse 15, and verse 16. Do you know what Jesus is saying? This entire parable is centered around one central idea. Listen! Listen to the Word of God. Because the seed that the, that the farmer is sowing, they are the words of God. You see here, the work of the farmer that's to scatter the seed. He, he reaches down into his bag. He pulls out a handful of seed and he throws it out into his farm. He's scattering the seed, verses 3 and 4. And he says in verse 14 clearly that that seed is the Word of God. It is the Word. To be crystal clear, you need to understand that when you read your Bible, when you hear the Word of God being preached, at that moment, you are actually hearing the very Word of God. And you must listen to it. Because once the Word is sown, the farmer's responsibility ends. Jesus indicates the farmer sows the Word, and that ends his work. And I'll just say it plainly once the word is preached, if it is preached in truth, the obligation to preach ends. And your obligation begins. And it's a fight. It's a fight because the adversary 
our adversary, the devil, Satan, he doesn't want us listening to and receiving the words of God. Look at verse 15. These are they by the wayside where the word is sown. When they have heard, Satan comes immediately. Now, Jesus is explaining that when the farmer is sowing the word, it lands on four different types of ground. It lands on the wayside. That would be the hard ground, like the rows between the plants. If you've ever walked in like a strawberry patch, right? In the springtime, you know how that ground between the, the strawberry vines, that those that ground gets very hard. People tramp it down, stamp it down with their feet, and it becomes very hard. It's wayside ground. And then he said, talked about stony ground, which is a place where there are rocks in the soil. Beneath the surface, you think there's soil, but it's just rocks, and there's just not enough soil for the plants. And then he describes weedy ground, thorny ground, where all the weeds are. And then he says there's the good farmland ground. And our adversary, Satan, his desire is to destroy the work of the word. Now, he can't do that in all the types of soil, right? But he can do that in one place especially. You see that in the text. When the seed lands on the wayside, Satan can come and, like a bird, just gobble up that seed. You see, Satan can take away the word when it's being sown when our hearts are hard. He comes and he takes away the word. And now that word cannot do anything because the seed is gone. There's no seed to grow any longer. And in the heart that's hard, well, that person, he's like the guy who gets in his car and he just says, I, I didn't get anything. I got nothing from God's word. And friends, that grieves me, but ultimately it grieves the Lord. I'm not talking about the application of the word. I, I understand applications... Um, are, are not necessarily biblical truth, right? Applications can change, in fact. Culture to culture, um, country to country, people live differently, and applications can change. I think I mentioned to you when I was growing up, my pastor called roller skating rock and roll on wheels, right? I mean, okay, culture changes, things change, and I don't think we think of roller skating that way anymore. All I can think about when I think about roller skating is that horrible moment when they called for couple skating and, and you would have to find a girl and hold her hand. And I just remember in junior high, the horrible, awkward feeling. And I have no doubt the poor girl I was holding hands with felt the same way. You know, the sweaty palm and you're just, I, I'm just praying for this to end. Please make it end. You know, and especially if she wasn't a good roller skater and we're just falling down. It's just terrible. That's how I thought. But culture changes. Applications change. Applications can be wrong. And even applications can change from person to person. No, no, no. What I'm talking about is when you see the text, when you look right down in the text and you understand what it means, and the Holy Spirit of God is now making application on your heart. And you say, no. 
And when you do that, you give opportunity for Satan to come and just gobble up the seed. And it's gone out of your heart. And like the writer of Hebrews says, it's like you're, you're sitting on the side of a bank. You know, it's, I, I get the picture of Mark Twain, American writer, Samuel Clemens, sitting on the bank of the Mississippi River. He's wearing pants that are kind of frayed at the bottom, and he's got his bare feet, and he's just dangling his feet in the water, and, and he's maybe got a, a piece of uh, stalk of something in his teeth, and, uh, and he's just sitting there, and he's just watching the world go by, and here comes a log in the river, and it just kind of goes right by him. He could reach out and grab it, but he doesn't, and this is what the writer of Hebrews says, you just kind of let the word of God just pass you by. And when you say no to the Holy Spirit of God, when you're reading His Word, you're just having a hard heart and you're missing what God wants for you. Well, let's move on to the second car. Let's get out of that first car. It's no good. We don't want to be there. And let's get into the second car because here the conversation is really completely different. The conversation here is really pretty positive. This guy says something like, well, that spoke to me. I got a lot out of the sermon. It was exactly what I needed. What a blessing. This is car number two. That was a really good sermon. In fact, you look at verse 16. These are they, likewise sown on stony ground, who when they heard the word, immediately receive it with what? What does the text say? Gladness, joy, happiness, Absolutely, this is what I need. That was a great sermon. But what Jesus is saying here is, be careful, we must fight against falling away from God's truth. Because on the one hand, this guy is really receptive to what's being said. He hears the word, and he's glad that he heard it. His initial reception is so good. This is what I need in my life. But Satan, he plays the long game. He's not just playing for now. He knows that afterward, do you see? That's the key word here. Afterward, this guy endures for a time, but time goes by. And afterward, when trouble comes, the person gives up what he heard and he's lost to it because of the persecution, because of the affliction, because of the trouble in his heart. This is exactly what James is talking about. The trying of your faith works patience or endurance. But my friends, when your faith is put to the test, if it fails, then it does not endure. And this is what we see so often people who are unsaved do when they come to persecution or trials, something difficult comes into their life. What we discover is what was really true of them from the beginning. That person was not a Christian. That person was unsaved. And now because of that trouble, all of that is revealed in the heart. And if you live long enough, you will suffer that kind of persecution. Every single person here will. I mean, some of you have. You've been through it. 
I've got to tell you as a pastor, it grieves me. It grieves me that I've been here long enough to watch people walk away from the Lord. People who sat right where you sit in the exact same chairs. You didn't even have to be in this building. It could have been over on Cary Parkway. Sat in the same chairs. We moved them from there to here. So same, same chairs. It's the same word, same preacher. It's all about the same. And week after week, Sunday upon Sunday, sat and listened and nodded and said, yes, and that's what I need. That's great. Yes, I love it. Boy, we love hearing you preach. But a little bit of trouble, and now we find out that that word never really got into soil. It was just temporary. And you learn all the Kids for Truth verses. Or back in the old day was the Awana verses. You learn all the Kids for Truth verses. You, you sit and you hear the same Sunday, some cases the same Sunday school teachers. Right? Been here long enough. And then you leave here and just go out and it, it's like it made no difference whatsoever. And this is that person that Jesus is describing. And it causes offense. The persecution causes offense. And he turns away from the truth. Now, it's not just a, a person who's unsaved that does this. There are Christians who do this too. There are believers who actually refuse to receive the word fully. And what we find then is that a positive reception is not necessarily a permanent one. Because he says, when the persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended the problem here now is the, the seed doesn't take root in the ground. It roots in the head, but not in the heart. And can I explain what I mean by that? Because there's a lot of people who talk about head knowledge, heart knowledge, and, there's, and there's, they use that to, to kind of confuse people. And I don't like confusion, especially when God's truth is involved. What I mean by that is this. They enjoy learning about God. They enjoy learning about the truth. They really enjoy the academic exercise of kind of learning this information. These are people who just enjoy learning. And maybe that's not you. You thought in grade school, I can't wait to be done. How many more years till I finish high school? I'm out. I want nothing more to do with it. Okay, that may be you. But there are people who go, I'm going to stay in school as long as I'm alive. <laughs> kind of one of those people, right? You just love being in school. And, and you can get it up here. But what you find is it doesn't actually do anything in your life. What I would call... In this case, the knowledge of the heart, or, or maybe just more the will, where the will says, I will respond to this truth. So it becomes something I know, but not something I'm living. And the initial reception being so positive, well, that's great. But when trouble comes, we find out it didn't actually sink far enough into the will. It was just something in the mind. And so... What happens is, is that the soil, number two, says, I will, but then doesn't. You remember Jesus talks to people, he says, which is better? The guy who says, I won't, and then goes back and says, okay, I should, and goes back and does it? Or the person who says, I will, but then doesn't do it at all? He says, of course, it's that first person. And how many of us sit through a sermon, and you kind of sit there and go, this is kind of boring, and, and there's nothing good to look at, and I've already read Revelation last Sunday, so I got nothing left to read in my Bible uh, that's any fun. So, 
you know, I'm kind of stuck here and I'm just kind of going through the motions of listening. We've all been there. I mean, every single one of us has done that. I mean, some of you are doing it right now. Okay. I, I, I understand. I, I do. I get that. But then later on, something you heard just kind of sticks with you and and then you go out and maybe you don't respond to it right now, but three or four weeks from now, something comes up in your life and you remember one little phrase that was said, one little thought, one verse you remember, and then God uses that in your heart. And then there are people who will stand at the back doors as I'm shaking hands and you'll shake hands with me, Pastor, that was such a great sermon, but by the time you're home, it's gone. Because something else happened in the meantime and you said, I, I don't want to do that. You see, soil number two says I will, but then it doesn't. Well, let's move on to car number three. Car number three is different because it's totally different. Car number three, well, this is what he says. What time does my team play today? I mean, it's just a totally different conversation entirely. And what Jesus is saying is, well, we must not be seduced by the things that hinder our walk with God. Look at verse 18. These are that which sown among the thorns, they hear the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things, they crowd out the word. The reception of God's word is crowded out by less important concerns. Jesus calls these concerns thorns, or we might say weeds. You see, at this point, there's competition for the space. This person has the truth in his heart, but he, he has other things in his heart as well. And now there's competition between the two for which will win out. Uh, some of you understand a little bit about farming, whether you were a farmer in the past. That's not most of us. Or whether you had, a, it's a couple of us are here, we used to be farmers or are farmers. Uh, but most, we don't have that experience, but you have maybe had a little garden or something, maybe even just planted flowers, and you know you don't go out where there's a bunch of grass or weeds and just plant flowers or plant some sort of corn or crops. It just doesn't work. You have to have good soil. And what's interesting is how Jesus describes these weeds. Notice his emphasis here. I'm going to call it worldliness. He says it's the cares of the world. Obviously here, that doesn't necessarily mean sinful things. It just means the care, the concerns of the world. It's the same idea Paul gives for a person who is married. You know, you get married, you have concerns of your spouse and your children. Where well, he says a single person doesn't have those concerns. In this case, it's the concerns of the world itself. Just life just kind of weighs you down. And the, But then he adds the lie of riches and now... We are talking about sinful things because he's referring to the love of money. This is a craving for wealth above other things. And then he says the desires for things. And this is not a desire for God. It's a desire for things. Boy, you read this and what comes to your mind? I'll tell you what comes to my mind is 1 John 2. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. Because everything that it's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, they're not of the Father, they're of the world. Now, some Christians, particularly in the last 50 years or so, have approached 1 John chapter 2 
as the world as it is controlled by Satan. So they make worldliness into sinful things. And that's certainly true, isn't it? In fact, we learn at the end of 1 John that the whole world is in the control of the evil one. Satan controls the world. He's the prince of the power of the air, Paul says in Ephesians 2. He is the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. So, so we understand that that is true. But I don't think that's John's point in 1 John 2. I think actually there he's just talking about stuff. And it's really easy to say, I don't have worldliness because I don't have any desire for the things of sin. I don't want to have anything to do with, with the, the sinful aspects of the world. I hope that's already all of us. I think every Christian in his heart, hopefully, ought to say, I want nothing to do with the sinful aspects of my culture. I want nothing to do with the sinful aspects of this life. But that's really not what Jesus is talking about because he talks about riches and things. And I think when we do that to 1 John 2, we're, we're able to say, I'm not worldly because I don't care for the sinful aspects of my culture, but I crave the things that aren't sinful. I have a desire for neutral things I have a desire for stuff. And we miss out that true worldliness is just anything that's of this world. And when we live our lives saying, that's what I want more than anything, is to have earth stuff. Well, as the guy said in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan called it the muck raker. The guy who just, he just takes his rake and rakes the dirt. That's what he wants. He wants to rake the dirt. And how many of us live life that way? Those are the weeds, the things of earth, the stuff, the cars, the houses, the clothes, the vacations, all the little things that make us crow as if we're, we've been so blessed. We have it so good. And those are the things that crowd out the word. They inhibit See, inhibit our fruitfulness. You see verse 19, the last part? They enter in, and what do they do? After they enter in, what do they do? They choke the word. And the seed now, the plant that's growing, it can't bear fruit. When the word of God is in competition with the world, it always loses. When you let the world be in competition with what you know to be true about God, the word loses because who is it that determines the outcome of this battle? My own heart does. I determine. God's done his work. He's planted the seed. But my heart, I've tolerated those weeds. And now I've determined what comes out of the equation. And the result is a dead plant. No fruit at all. Well, how often do we sit and listen to the word of God preached and we get to the end and we just go, well, that was nice. What, what next? And thoughts go to my, my favorite baseball team or my favorite gardening show. 
whatever I want to do next. How often we're so focused on the fact that our vacation starts midday on Sunday that we're just waiting for the pastor to end. When will he get over? I got to get in the car. We're driving to the beach. We're going to Disney World. There's a fourth choice. This is car number four. So let's get out of all three of those cars and let's get into car number four because car number four is the good car, right? This is the Tesla Motors of all cars, okay? <laughs> or whatever your favorite car is. This is the good car. I mean, it doesn't have to be that one. It, it can be anything. It can be a GM. It can be a Ford. I, I don't care. Whatever your favorite car is, this is the good car. Because this car says, I need to change to be more like Jesus. And we learn here we must delight in God's word. Verse 20, these are they which are sown on good ground as who hear the word and what do they do? They receive it. Now the good soil is described in two ways. The good soil is always listening for God's truth. I need to get more of God's truth. I need to hear more from God. My ears are open. You're like, like a solar array uh, in space. I am trying to get as much of the sun, S-O-N, as I can. I want Jesus in my life. I'm listening to him on the radio, on the internet, in the written word on Sunday. I'm memorizing it. I want to ingest it. I understand how does a young man cleanse his way but by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Because the word of God is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. If the word of God, it reproves me and corrects me and instructs me in righteousness so that I can grow to full maturity in Christ. I want the word of God, that seed, to be implanted in me, the incorruptible seed that bears life, that bears fruit. That's what I want. But he doesn't just want it. When he hears it, he says, that's what I need for me. And he receives the word of God. Fully and completely. That was for me. That's mine. He's marking all over his Bible. That's what I need in my life. I've got to change in this area. I've got to stop being like that. And I need to start being like this. It's a complete and total turning. It's the repentance of the heart that seeks righteousness in the life. And we find here what happens, what's absent in that person. That person receives a word. He receives a seed and the birds can't get to it. It's deep down in the heart. And the stones aren't there to hinder it. And the weeds aren't there to choke it out. It's down there germinating. And it's going to sprout up in the life and become a big, beautiful plant. I, I love the parable Jesus gives about the weeds among in the farm. You know, he says the adversary goes and he sows weeds in the farm. You, you know, to an amateur like me, in the springtime, I can't tell a weed from a non-weed. We have flower beds all over the church. They grow up, they're just little tiny plants, a little bit of green. And I go down to pick it. So he says, don't pick that. That's not a weed. That's a, and then some Latin phrase comes out. You know, he's go, well, of course it is. Absolutely. It's, you know, an, an invictus dilatarius, a, a horrible pain or whatever that would be. You know, I don't want that. No, no, it's a big, beautiful plant. It turns black and smells like death. But you want this plant. It's wonderful. It only flowers every 40 years, but 
Oh, yeah. You can't tell. So he says, just leave them all there. And at the end of the world, we'll know if you're a fruit bearing plant or just a weed. This is what happens. It's just a tiny little seedling and it begins to grow. You know, speaking of 40-year plants. This spring over in Raleigh, this guy had a plant in his yard. I don't know if he planted it or not. I think maybe he, maybe he did plant it, but it just didn't do anything for 20, 30 years. Guys lived in the same house all that time. And this past spring, it began to grow. He said, I got up in the morning and it was five feet. There's a stalk five feet tall in my front yard out of nowhere. And then, you know, a few days later, it's 10 feet tall. And then it's 20 feet tall. We drove by the guy's house. It was in the news. So we drove over there. He was standing out in front of his yard. He just loved to talk to people. They all come up, stop their car to look at his plant. It's way up there. Do you know at the end of the season, it died. It's gone. He said he'd offer me seeds. I, I said, friend, I won't be around when this plant, you know, does what this happen? I'll be dead by then. So I'm not going to, I don't want, thank you. He offered seeds. I don't want any seeds. I'm, I don't know what I would do with them. I can't, I wouldn't eat them. And I, and I, if I planted them. I wouldn't benefit from it. But we're out there talking. You know, it's amazing. You put that seed down in the heart and you plant that seed. And then in that good soil, it just blossoms and it bears fruit. You see, this kind of reception always produces spiritual fruit. Look at the end of verse 20. He says it brings forth fruit, 30, 60, 100. The seed always produces spiritual change. It always produces the fruit. God's word produces change in the life because you want it to occur. God is doing his work, but you have to want it. God is not going to change you to be like Christ in this life. If you don't want to be like Christ in areas of your life. Now, in certain areas, you'll say, sure, I want to be like Jesus. But in some areas, you say, I don't want to be like Jesus. Okay. He'll just beat you down for the rest of your life. He'll just pummel you up because he's chastening you to try to help you see that you're wrong. God's doing his work. He's sowing the seed, but you must do yours. You must listen and you must receive. And the plant now grows unhindered to produce this soil crop in the soil that's good. This, I believe, is what John means to abide in Christ. This is the vine producing a crop that glorifies the farmer that is God. And friends, this is why we take in our children and we teach them the word of God. We teach them in the morning and in the evening. We teach them at night. We teach them at midday. We teach them the word of God. This, this is why I want them to learn memory verses. This is why I want my children to, to sit in church I know there'd be a lot of more things they could be doing that's fun. And it might just be boring and a lot of it goes over their head. I know that. But listen, there's, there's seed here. And some of that seed lands in their little hearts and it changes them. And they grow from it. I've told you this story before when I was a young man. I think I was a sophomore in high school. I was sitting in church one Sunday, pastor was preaching uh, from 2 Peter, chapter uh, 1, maybe the beginning, end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. And he was talking about the word of God, and the spirit of God actually took uh, holy men of God who spake as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. And he was describing what it means to be born along. And our pastor wasn't a big dynamic shouting kind of preacher. 
he was uh, he was very soft spoken, um, and he just quietly but very accurately explained what that means. And I was sitting there. I'm a sophomore in high school. You say, what can a sophomore in high school get out of church? Well, I was listening. Two couple days later, I'm sitting in Bible class. Our my high school had a Bible class, and I'm sitting in Bible class, and we had a guest teacher. Our teacher was regular teacher was out of town. Our guest teacher happens to be a member of our church, and he was he decided I don't know if he realized I need a lesson for for the kids, but he decided basically to reteach the pastor's sermon. And so he got to this idea of the oh, holy men of God spake as they were born along by the Holy Ghost. Now the pastor had explained that it's just like a it's just like a sail on a sailboat that opens up and and lets the wind and the wind just kind of flows that ship along. So instead of being uh, carried to wherever the waves are carrying the ship to go, the wind actually pushes that boat where the wind is pushing and going in the sail, and it all directs that boat where the boat needs to go. So he was explaining this, and he said, now how many of you know what that means? And I shot my hand up. And he goes, okay, Matthew, what does it mean? And I basically repeated almost verbatim what my pastor had said, what I just told you. I repeat almost verbatim what my pastor had taught me. And then he looked at me and he said, you were listening in church, weren't you? Yes, I was. And you were getting your outline from church, weren't you? (laughs) Yes, you were. But I was listening. And I was receiving. We heard this morning in the preparatory time how many people here made decisions as children to follow the Lord. The seed just works. And whether you're 75 or 7.5, the seed works. And you receive that seed. And instead of it being in ground that has no soil, instead of it being in ground where there are weeds, you say yes to the Lord. Yes, Lord, this is for me. And what comes out of your life is fruit. And the farmer picks that fruit and says, look at this fruit. And everybody says, what a great farmer. Men, see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Help us to see here the responsibility we have to listen and receive your word. Help us to be like the person in the last car. Every single time your word is preached, every time we listen to it, every time we hear it, help us to be like the person in the last car. To receive the word and to let it sink into the soil of our hearts and bear fruit. Before I finish praying, how many of you say, Pastor, God's Spirit speaking to my heart because there are weeds in my heart that need to go that have kept me from really receiving the word. Or, Pastor, pray for me. I receive the word gladly, but it's not something I really receive. I I just kind of do. But I know in my heart I'm really not obeying it. I'm really not responding to it. Or, Pastor, truth be told, my heart's pretty hard. It's really pretty hard. I'm not talking about completely hard. I'm not saying every part is hard. But maybe there are areas where you know God's been speaking to you over the last weeks and months and maybe even years, and you haven't been responding. 
And right now, while you were listening, once again, you hear that knocking sound of the Holy Spirit on your heart saying, listen, listen, listen. Will you listen? If you're here this morning, say, Pastor, the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to me. I want to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand? Yes, brother. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. Yes, sir. yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. The Spirit of God is speaking to my heart. It's the little changes that make differences in us. Oh, we, we pastors love the big changes. But, you know, people weeping and crying and it's the big, you know, decision. No, no, no. The, the things that really change us, the small, tiny changes we make week by week. That's what makes us mature in Christ. Lord, help us to take this message to learn from it. Maybe we don't even grow today from what we heard, but maybe it's something that will just take, take time to bear fruit. Help us to say yes to you and not to say no. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you could think of a time when you said no to the Lord in the past, maybe now's a good time to say yes to him as the pianist plays.